Thank you so much, Ben. If you will take your Bibles and go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 23, and then also turn over to John chapter 19. Maybe put something there to hold that spot. Today I'm going to be preaching the first of three messages. Originally I wanted this to be a sermon every Sunday of Lent, so I was going to take each of these statements and do one at a time all the way uh, through to Easter. But then I had this little thing come up in my schedule Wednesday and uh, kind of threw me off a bit. So rather than just scrap it, I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to condense it down. So, you know, you might hear this as a seven-sermon series years down the road. But for this year, we're going to do it in three. Now, no one gospel contains all seven of these statements that Jesus made from the cross. And, of course, as with a lot of things, when you're trying to harmonize the different gospel accounts, there's some debate over exactly the order in which some of these come. And and none of that's really important. What's important to remember is that these were actual events. These things happened. Jesus spoke these words. Now, did he maybe say more than these seven things? It's possible. But these are the seven things Jesus said from the cross, important enough for, to, for God to inspire Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to record them for us. These are the things that God wanted us to know that Jesus said. Now, as we read these passages, as we discuss their meaning, as we look at what God wants to say to us today, what implication does this have for our lives, we have to be careful not to treat these stories as allegorical. Again, these things happen. Yes, there's truth to discover. Yes, there's theology to unpack. Yes, there's application to be made. But remember, these were words actually spoken by Jesus as He suffered and died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. And it's important to remember these words are spoken both from Jesus' divinity and from His humanity. Some of these things that He says are truly remarkable because they so go against human nature. And then on the other hand, some of them are very relatable. And we might think, you know, I might say something like that if I were in His place. Now, I resist calling these Jesus' final words or His last words because Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is from eternity past and will be forever in eternity. Amen? Amen? He is the eternal Lord. So Jesus really can't say any last words, any final words, but they are the words spoken from this place of death, spoken at the conclusion of His earthly ministry, spoken by a man about to die a horrible death. And that's what gives them great significance. What is it that Jesus chose to utter at this moment of cosmic significance. The Gospels record many things that Jesus said, right? I mean, a lot of His ministry wasn't just healing. It was also teaching and preaching. He said a lot of things. But these seven words, these seven statements bear special weight. When you look at the four Gospel accounts and you look at how much time they spend on Jesus' life and ministry, it's striking Out of 33 years on this earth, three years of ministry, it's striking how much of the Gospels focus on this one week in Jesus' life, the week leading up to the cross and the empty tomb. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they spend roughly 40% of their narrative on this week. 
John spends 66% of his gospel on this week. I think the disciples understood the significance of what Jesus was doing there, don't you? They understood the importance of this. That Jesus' primary mission, His overreaching purpose, wasn't just to heal the sick, wasn't just to feed the hungry, it wasn't just to teach us about the kingdom of God. No, Jesus came to suffer and die for our sins, to pay our sin debt, to endure the wrath of God that we deserve so that we might become the children of God. So that we could come to faith in Him and receive His blessing of life everlasting. These seven words from the cross can be summed up in two categories. As been so well put here, those first three words we look at today, Jesus is focusing on the people around Him. He's not focusing on Himself. His first words from the cross are focused on others. And then the last four words from the cross are spoken about Himself and His relationship with the Father and the conclusion of His ministry. So we're going to look at these first three today, and then we'll look at two more on the the last Sunday of March, and then two more on Palm Sunday. And I want you to notice that Jesus' first words, again, think about it, His first words from the cross, His concern as He is suffering and dying, as He is suffering shame, as He is is being pierced and being uh, just tortured on that cross, His first thoughts were not for Himself. They were for others. Already. Jesus is exemplifying for us how we should behave and think when we suffer trials and difficulties. Rather than be absorbed by our struggles and our pain, rather than have a woe-is-me kind of mindset, we should trust in our Father in Heaven and think of other people before ourselves. That's what Jesus does. So let's look at this first word. It was a word of forgiveness. Let's look at Luke chapter 23. Verses 32 through 34, and then I want to have a word of prayer. It says that two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. So we're kind of jumping here in the middle of the action. You know, Jesus has had that last supper on Thursday night with Passover. He went to the garden to pray. Judas came and betrayed him. He was arrested. The disciples scattered. He was taken to uh, the high priest's house and he was tried there where Peter denied him three times and ran out weeping. Jesus endures suffering. He endures punches and spitting and having his beard torn out. And, and then he's taken to Pilate and then he's shipped off to Herod and then he's back to Pilate. He has the crown of thorns placed on his head and he is beaten severely with the cat of nine tails. Most people die from that alone. And then he is forced to carry his cross to the shouts from the people of crucify him through the streets of Jerusalem to the hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And two criminals are being executed there with him. When they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this time in your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take your holy word and speak to our hearts. Draw us closer to you. May we hear what you have to say to each of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Christ's first words from the cross were as a prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In this moment of excruciating pain, he's 
literally laid bare on this cross in front of his mother, in front of his disciples, in front of those who were accusing him, the Pharisees and Sadducees, in front of these Roman soldiers, in front of everyone passing by. And the first thing Jesus did was pray to his Father. Not for himself, not to relieve his pain, not to rescue him with legions of angels from this cross. No, he prayed for others. He prayed for us. I want to notice a few things about this prayer. First, it was a prayer of trust. He prayed to His Father. Despite the suffering and shame, Jesus knew that His Father was with Him. He knew that God was still His Father. And as Jesus took our place on the cross, He used a word that we have no right to use. As sinners, as enemies of God, as children under wrath... Jesus addressed Him as the Father as He took our sins so that we too might become children of God. Because of what Jesus endured on that cross, we, as though adopted, can call God our Father as well. Jesus prayed on this cross because in the prayer of Gethsemane, He had already submitted to His Father's will. Remember what He said in Gethsemane? He said, Father, if You are willing, take this cup away from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. It was the will of God the Father that God the Son endure the wrath against sin that you and I incurred. He died as a substitutionary sacrifice for the atonement of our sins. Jesus obediently submitted to the Father's will, went to the cross, despising its shame, and counted it as joy as He sacrificed Himself for us. It was a prayer of trust. Secondly, it was a prayer for His enemies. As been said in this children's sermon, Jesus is praying for the very people He came to love, heal, and forgive. The people who rejected Him. The people who were crucifying Him. He prayed for His disciples who betrayed and denied and abandoned Him. They loved Jesus. They believed in Jesus, but they didn't understand what He had come to do. They didn't understand what kind of Messiah He came to be. He prayed for the Jewish religious leaders who had drummed up charges and had him arrested and falsely accused and tried him in the dead of the night against the laws of the Sanhedrin. The men who condemned him to protect their own power and the religious establishment. They thought they knew what kind of Messiah they were looking for. And they missed it. Jesus prayed for them. He prayed for the Roman soldiers who were blindly obeying Pilate's orders. They had learned not to concern themselves with who they were crucifying or why. Are they innocent or guilty? It doesn't matter. They simply go through the motions of putting a man to death on the cross as they had done dozens and dozens of times before. He prayed for Pilate who was trying to appease an angry Jewish mob and save his own political position in Jerusalem. He wanted to keep the Jews happy and he wanted to keep Caesar happy. Jesus prayed for him. He prayed for his enemies. He prayed for them in part because of their ignorance. They didn't know what they were doing. None of them could understand the gravity of their actions, who it was that they were crucifying, not just the long-awaited Messiah, but the Creator God Himself the King of kings and Lord of lords. So Jesus harbored no hatred, no bitterness, no resentment toward either His accusers or His executioners. After all, He was no victim. Jesus was no victim. Everything He suffered, 
He allowed to happen. He welcomed it. Nothing happened to Jesus that was not part of the divine plan of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus had taught His disciples, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. He taught them to forgive without limit. And so now Jesus is putting that very teaching into practice. He's doing it. And you know, if Jesus could forgive those who mistreated, betrayed, abandoned, denied Him, those people that were condemning Him, if He could pray for them and forgive them, guess what? There's no one in your life or mine that we can't forgive. No one. There is no crime against us anyone can commit greater than the crime committed against Jesus. We must remember we have no excuse, no justification for harboring unforgiveness or bitterness in our hearts. It was a prayer for His enemies. Third, it was a prayer specifically for His enemies for forgiveness. He's praying for forgiveness. He prayed for their greatest need, our greatest need, the thing that none of us could accomplish for ourselves, the forgiveness of our sin by holy God. Now, the Greek word here that Luke uses, this word forgive them, it literally means to cancel, to cancel the charge against. In other words, to pardon. It's not that they're not guilty. They are guilty. You and I are guilty of sin. But Jesus asks the Father to pardon us in our guilt. In Romans chapter 3, Paul writes at length about this. He says, beginning in verse 21, he says, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. So Paul is explaining, and really throughout the book of Romans, he explains that we are guilty of breaking God's law, all of us. And not only the law revealed in the Old Testament, but the law of God revealed in creation itself. Paul says no one is without excuse. We are all guilty of breaking His law. Our sin is apparent. Evil is recognizable. Every human being ever born is guilty of being a lawbreaker. He goes on to say the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. We are guilty under God's law but we can find righteousness in Christ Jesus. And it's available to all. Jew and Gentile. Men and women. Slave and free. Rich and poor. Young and old. It doesn't matter who you are without distinction. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ you can receive His righteousness. You can be forgiven. He says, For all have sinned, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. That word for sinned, and think about that idea of falling short. That word for sin literally means to miss the mark. It's as if we are taking aim at a target and we fire and it falls short. We miss the target of God's holiness, of God's purpose for our lives. We're sinners. Now, Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin, the sin we've all been guilty of, the wages of sin, what we earn by our sin, just like you earn wages when you work, we have earned by our sin death. That's the payment. We deserve to die. 
physically and spiritually, temporally and eternally. Our sins have so separated us from God, our Creator, that from birth, our trajectory is always and forever away from God. And the further in life we go, the further from God we become until we enter eternity and we are eternally separated from God in a place, an actual spiritual realm the Bible calls hell. We fool ourselves by thinking that we are generally good people. I'm a good person. I've never murdered anybody. I've never robbed a bank. I've never whatever, fill in the blank. We fool ourselves. When we say, why would a loving God send good people to hell? Listen, our sins blind us to the gravity of our rebellion against our Creator. Paul says in Ephesians 2.3, he describes us as living out fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath. It's our nature. Just as much as those who are crucifying Jesus on the cross were His enemies, we are born enemies of God by our sinfulness. We are children under His wrath. Or as Paul says in Romans 5, he describes us as helpless, sinners, and enemies of God. But, but, listen to the rest of those verses. Listen to the rest of them. I've only only read you half of these passages of Scripture that point out our lost condition, that point out the seriousness of our sin, that point out how desperately and hopelessly condemned we are in this life. Listen to the second half of these verses. In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We earn death by our sin. We receive life as a gift. You see the contrast there? In Roman, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, We were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You were saved by grace. He also raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace through the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. And then in Romans 5, where Jesus called, where Paul calls us enemies, sinners, helpless. Listen to what he says. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died. For who? For the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by His blood, will we be saved through Him from wrath? For if while we were His enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? That's the good news, folks. 
That's the gospel. Let's continue on. I think we were in Romans 3. Uh, Let's continue on. He goes on to say, They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as the mercy seat. That's the the top, the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, in in the Ark of the Covenant is the broken commandments that Moses hurled down, the broken law of God. And when God looked down on that, that's what He saw, that we broke His law. And once a year, the high priest would come and he would take the blood from the atoning sacrifice and he would cover the mercy seat so that when God looked down, he saw the blood that covers our sin. And what Paul is saying here is Jesus is that sacrifice. That Christ died for us. That we are justified by His blood. That when He looks down, He looks at that mercy seat by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, God is able to be just. He's not letting sin go unpunished. But He's also able to justify us because Jesus took the punishment you and I deserve. He suffered the wrath that your sins and mine deserve. Amen? Amen. I mean, if we can't get excited about that, I don't know what we can. Jesus died for His enemies. Not just the men that were there on that Good Friday. He died for you and me. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, God, made the one, Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That great exchange took place on Calvary. This is why Jesus came. This is what the cross, Holy Week, Easter, it's what it's all about. This is the focus of all Scripture. This is the turning point of all human history. And if you've ever thought that your sin was too great for God to forgive, that your past somehow put you out of reach of God's grace, you're wrong. (laughs) You're wrong. And this proves it. There is no sin too great. There are no sins too numerous for which God can't or won't forgive you. None. These first words spoken from the cross are proof that God is ready and willing and eager to forgive sins. It's what He longs to do. And His mercy isn't limited by the nature of your sin. You don't have to beg for God to forgive you. He's eager. He's ready to pour out His grace on you if you simply repent of your sins and ask for Him. He is ready. The pitcher is tipped. He's longing to pour His grace and mercy out on you. Have you experienced that? Have you been forgiven of your sin? Don't stay away from Jesus. Listen, He longs for you to experience this forgiveness. His greatest desire is for you to put your faith and trust in Him and to become a new creation, for the old to be gone and the new to come. That's why He came. That's why He died. Have you been forgiven? I want you to think about that. The flip side of that coin is this. Have you forgiven? David, now you've gone from preaching to meddling. 
Listen, Jesus shows us that it's possible for us to forgive anyone for any wrong they could ever commit against us. If Jesus could forgive these people for what they did to Him on the cross, there's nothing you and I can't forgive of other people. And we don't forgive to be forgiven. Listen, we forgive because we're forgiven. A forgiven person should be a forgiving person. Who would God have you forgive today? The second word I want us to look at is a word for the future. We continue on in verse 35. The people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Now, if you read the other Gospels, originally both criminals were doing this. Both men were insulting Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, Don't you even fear God since you were undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. So in the second statement from the cross, Jesus is focusing on our eternal future. He's speaking to a dying man, this thief, this murderer being executed by him. At some point, this one criminal began to take note of what others were saying about Jesus. He looked at the sign above him. He looked at that crown of thorns on his head. He began to realize, maybe this is the King of the Jews. And then when he heard Jesus pray to his Father to forgive these people, he knew there was something special about this man. This criminal had probably seen lots of people in a similar situation. They either curse the people that are hurting them or they beg for mercy. Jesus didn't neither. He prayed to His Father to forgive them. This man took note. Maybe he experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit and he wondered, what about my sins? If God could forgive these people for what they're doing here, certainly God could forgive me. Jesus had prayed for forgiveness for those around Him and here this man was about to experience the answer to that prayer. And he experienced the full grace of God. He was made alive in Christ and he received the gift of eternal life. And what happens to him tells us a few things about our own salvation. First of all, that it begins with honest confession. This man acknowledged in rebuking the other criminal that he was a sinner, that he was guilty, and at the same time that Jesus wasn't. He recognized Christ's sinlessness and his own sin. The Bible tells us that no one turns to God in faith without the conviction and drawing of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. So this man's conviction of sin, well, this question that he asked Jesus was, was not just that he was sorry for being caught, And he wasn't begging Jesus. He didn't ask Jesus to save him from the cross. He didn't ask Jesus to spare his life. He asked Jesus to remember him in his kingdom. He asked in his own way for forgiveness and salvation. Secondly, it requires simple faith. This man didn't know much about Jesus that we know. 
He certainly couldn't write any treatises on soteriology or Christology or anything like that. His faith was simple. He simply recognized that Jesus was the King and that His kingdom was not of this world. And he put his faith and his trust in Jesus. Jesus said, all the faith you need is the faith the size of a mustard seed. All you need is the simple trusting faith of a child. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to be able to explain it all. Paul tells us in Romans 10 how simple it is. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a simple faith. Third, it involves a personal request. He was asking Jesus to remember Him. It was a personal request made to Jesus. Listen, salvation isn't just about escaping hell. It's about having a relationship of love with God through Jesus Christ. It's about knowing God and trusting God and wanting to be with God. And that's what this thief was asking. Jesus, I want to be with you. Remember me in your kingdom. And notice that its promise is an immediate and eternal answer. Jesus' response to this man puts to rest any questions we may have about what happens to a believer upon death. There is no soul sleep Your soul isn't sleeping in that grave with your body. There is no purgatory that you go to. Jesus told this man, today you will be with me in paradise. I think that's hard to misread that. Today you will be with me. Jesus answers the question about what heaven is like. He calls it paradise. That Greek word, and that really is the Greek word, it's paradiso, that Greek word paradise, it literally means a garden or a park. It's like a walled-in garden. And the Hebrew equivalent for this word is the word Eden. Eden. Jesus tells this man, He promises him that He will be with him in a place like Eden where people walk and talk with God. And there is no sickness, there is no sin, and there is no death. The promise of heaven is a promise of wholeness and peace in the presence of God. And you know what? Whatever else heaven is like, that's enough for me. It answers the question about whether baptism is necessary for salvation. This man didn't have an opportunity to be baptized, did he? He had no opportunity to perform any kind of good works of penance whatsoever. He simply cried out to Jesus in faith, and Jesus saved him. He's the perfect example that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. There was nothing this man could boast about except the mercy of God. And finally, this puts to rest any skepticism we may have about deathbed conversions. I've heard people say, you know, yeah, on his deathbed, he said he wanted to become a Christian. He prayed and received. I don't know how genuine that is. Listen, Jesus didn't discount this man's conversion because he was on his deathbed. Neither should we. My philosophy is you leave it up to God whether somebody's profession of faith is genuine or not. You simply help them come to faith in Christ and you rejoice in it. The second verse of There is a Fountain says, The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Maybe this morning you need to come to faith in Jesus. You need to put a simple trust in Him. You don't have to know 
a lot about the Bible. You don't have to be an expert in any way. You don't have to clean up your act first. Just acknowledge your great need and God's great gift and put your trust in Jesus. And here in a little bit, when I conclude this message and stand down here, I invite you, if you need to put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, just as this thief did, I invite you to come. But first, I want to have one quick word about family. About family. Look with me at John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved, and that's the way John references himself, so it's Mary and John, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple John, Here is your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his home. This third word from the cross hits home for Jesus. How profoundly human that in the midst of His saving work on the cross, bearing our sin and shame, extending forgiveness, promising paradise, in the midst of this big, eternal, weighty stuff, Jesus stops to take care of His mother. In this moment, Jesus isn't accomplishing anything of great eternal or cosmic significance. He's not doing anything that impacts our salvation or overcomes sin or defeats Satan in these words. It's simply the words of a son who loves his mother, who takes seriously the responsibility to care for her, who wants to make sure that after he is dead and even after he's raised and ascended to heaven, he wants to make sure for the rest of her life she's taken care of. Because remember, this isn't just the worst moment in Jesus' life. This is the worst moment in Mary's life. Remember when Simeon held Jesus in the temple? He said that a sword will pierce your own soul too. That's what's happening right here for Mary. And these words remind us that family is the foundational institution of God. It's the first institution God established after creation. Family matters. God cares about family, and God expects us to care about our family. The Old Testament law has a lot to say about our family responsibilities to love and respect and care for one another. Parents are to love and care for their children and provide for their children, raise them surrounded with God's Word to love and know and follow God. And children are commanded to honor, respect, and obey their parents, and especially commanded to look after them in their old age. And Jesus affirmed these commands when He confronted the Pharisees in Matthew 15. They had been withholding their support for their mothers so they could give these big flashy offerings in church to draw attention to themselves. And Jesus rebuked them for... He said you need to do the latter without neglecting the former. You've got to take care of your parents. And here on Calvary, Jesus once again gives us an example. He practices what he preached. He honored his mother. He cared for her in this horrific moment. Family is essential. Whatever that looks like for you. You could be married or single. You could have 20 kids or no kids. You could have a bunch of grandkids or none at all. What's important to remember is that it is our sacred duty to care for those people God has brought innermost into our lives whether that's through blood or marriage, 
God expects you to care for family. doesn't matter how demanding your job. doesn't matter how public your service is. Listen, nothing you will ever do is as important and demanding as what Jesus was doing in that moment. And yet he take time for his mom. We need to take time for our families. Paul even says in 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You think that's serious? It's serious. Our homes are to, be the first, are to be the first place of discipleship where we raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, where we present the gospel to them and give them an environment and an opportunity to put their faith and trust in Jesus to disciple them as they grow in their faith. Marriage is designed to be a picture of the gospel, of the relationship of love and submission between Christ and His church. And the Christian home should be an outpost of ministry as we have an opportunity to bless others and to minister together and to let our families be a shining light to a world that devalues and desecrates God's plan for the family. A Christian home is a vital place of ministry. And sadly, many homes are broken. Many families are fractured. You know why? Because of sin. What word has Jesus said to you this morning? Maybe He has said to you a word about forgiveness. You need your sin forgiven. Your life is broken and fractured. You need Jesus to make you whole. You need Jesus to declare you righteous. Would you come this morning? And you say, David, I don't understand it all. I can't explain it all. But this I know. I am lost in my sin. Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose from the grave. I want to trust in Him. That's all you've got to know. Would you come this morning and experience His grace? Maybe God has said to you a word about your future. Maybe the word for you is that you want to know that when you die, you're going to spend eternity with Him in heaven. Maybe you've got some doubts, some questions in your life about that. I invite you to come and to settle that with God. Maybe the word of forgiveness for you is that God has placed someone on your heart that you need to forgive. And you need to come and confess the bitterness and the resentment in your heart and ask Him to help you extend His grace to someone else. Maybe this morning it's a word about family. You've not been the husband and father that God would have you to be. You've not been the mother and wife that God would have you to be. You've not been the brother or sister or the child that God would have you to be. If you need to come to this altar this morning and confess that and ask Him to help you to love and honor and respect and care for your family. Or maybe God is speaking to you about this faith family and He's asking you and your family to unite with us. Whatever God has laid on your heart this morning, whatever word you've heard today from the cross, let's be like that thief. Let's be obedient and let's respond. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we thank You for the grace and mercy that You demonstrated on the cross while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God, I pray You would help anyone here today that needs to put their trust in Jesus for salvation, that needs to come as a sinner so that they can leave this place as a son or daughter of God. Lord, if there's anybody here that needs to come and unite with this church, that needs to come for baptism, whatever the need in their life, I pray, Lord, that You would help every one of us to be obedient and respond to Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.